Father, I do thank you for this opportunity to come together corporately to praise you, to worship you, to declare your excellencies, to uh, magnify your son Jesus. And Father, I thank you for this time you've given us to be in your word, and I do pray that you would prepare our hearts, that we would be ready, that we would be instructed, that we would become more like your son Jesus, and that you would use your word to greatly encourage us today. Lord, I thank you for this time, and we commit it to you now in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, what things do you look forward to? On a small scale, we look forward to uh, maybe the all-church lunch, you know, or, or dinner, or seeing somebody that we haven't seen, whatever it might be. But on a large scale, we look forward to things at times and anticipate uh, things that are pretty, pretty grand, like maybe someone anticipating a future marriage or, or anticipating uh, a child being born or, or something that is like that where you're looking forward to an event that you, you know is going to come and you're in, eagerly anticipating it. Well, it's interesting. We as believers have different anticipations. You see, before I was saved, I just looked forward to my own time, my own stuff, my own uh, free time. Whatever it might be, it was all about me, whatever was pleasing me. Even though I would have claimed to be a Christian, I wasn't at that time. And yet when the Lord saved me, he changed my anticipations. Although we uh, are struggle and also are tempted with those former anticipations every day. Now, uh, we as believers anticipate being together, being in his word, singing his praises, those things that are of him, those things that are good. And yet uh, we're going to see in scripture today that we as believers have something really great to be anticipating that we should be eagerly looking forward to. And we're going to see that we should be eagerly looking forward to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to change us forever. As you turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, we're going to finish the chapter today, Lord willing. And we've been studying the book of Philippians And we're going to be looking at uh, verses 17 to 21, focusing more directly on 20 and 21. Now, Paul is writing the saints in Philippi uh, who are in Christ Jesus, as all saints are. And he's writing them. He is chained to a Roman guard 24-7. And he has uh, prayed for them. His desire is uh, is that they would grow in their love for Christ and real knowledge and discernment. Uh, His desire is for them to uh to understand the truth he is confident that god will begin the the good work that he has already he will complete the good work that he has already begun and the apostle paul has shared his circumstances that he is in prison but the gospel is not that god is using those difficult circumstances for his glory and he shared his attitude that to live is christ and to die is gain To live is to serve the Lord, and specifically would be to serve these Philippians, to remain on. To die is much better to be with the Lord. And understanding whatever happens, whether in life or death, that Christ would be magnified. He then, in the end of chapter 1, addresses the Philippians' attitudes. They are to be united, they are to be humble, they are to be like Christ Jesus. They are to stand firm in the gospel against opposition, knowing Uh, the truth of what God has done, that we all uh, are destined to suffer temporarily, but the reality is God is working uh, to his glory through those events. They're to be united. They're to be, uh, chapter 2, united in spirit. They're to be in unity in, in the context of humility, seeing Christ as the perfect example. 
uh, God in human flesh. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then we see he was exalted to his rightful place, uh, Jesus being Lord of all, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And then we saw that we should be obediently working on our salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in us. And then we had the first command after that tremendous uh, command that we should do all things without complaining and grumbling or arguing. All things. And then in the end of chapter 2, we saw three selfless examples of humility. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. And then coming into chapter 3, the Apostle Paul reminds us, and certainly obviously reminding them, but us, that there are threats to our walk with Jesus Christ. There are threats to our faith in Jesus Christ. And we are to beware. We're to beware of those false guys, the bad guys. Beware of the dogs, the evil workers, the false circumcision. And Paul then says, we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. True believers, and obviously those who are leading in the church there, put no confidence in the flesh. Then the Apostle Paul gave his testimony. If anyone could put confidence in the flesh, it could have been him. And he lists off all those religious accomplishments and his heritage and all that stuff. And then he reveals that when he came to Christ, he considered all of that as refuse. It was all nothing, worthless. And you can't come to Christ without seeing your religiousness beforehand as worthless. You need to come in faith, completely trusting in him. Not one bit of your own righteousness in there. And within that, we see the Apostle Paul sharing his testimony after coming to Christ. His desire was to know him, to be like him. Credible reality. And within that, we have the heart of Paul revealing the truth, his all-consuming passion to know him. And he pressed forward towards that goal, not looking back. The goal, the upward call in Christ, being conformed to the image of Christ. And then we were exhorted also to do the same thing. To not go back from where we've come, to not slip back, but to continue to grow in Jesus Christ, and then to mimic uh, the relationship, to to copy in a sense, truly from the heart, the, the relationship the Apostle Paul uh, pictured for us, as we see in Scripture, and we saw so so clearly that the that the Apostle Paul revealed the Christian life, you know, could be summed up in a sense. It's the process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ through all the situations, all the circumstances the Lord allows. So with that in mind, we're going to see today how we believers are to walk, how we are to walk. If you name the name of Christ, if you're a true believer, how are we to walk during this temporal time on this earth? And today we're going to see that we should be eagerly awaiting the coming of our Lord Jesus to change us forever. Well, if you're not there already, Philippians chapter 3, and I want to back up to what we saw last week and just read through that, and then we'll look at our passage also. Let's start in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. And then our passage. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also, for which we also, 
from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Tremendous passage we're going to look at today in verses 20 and 21. The reality of what God has planned for every true believer. It's a tremendous passage. And you might remember that this portion is not on its own. Verse 20 does not sit on its own. It is connected to what I just read. And so I just want to review very simply what we saw last week and then move into what we see in verse 20. You remember we were commanded to walk the way the Apostle Paul walked. Verse 17, brethren, this is to believers, those who are, who are in the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. You might remember we saw last week that, it, that you could literally translate it this way. Become continually, habitually fellow imitators of me. Now, that, you might think that's prideful. Paul is saying, be like me. Well, be like Paul as he follows Christ, as he trusts Christ and presses forward towards that goal, that upward call in Christ Jesus. He's not looking back, but pressing forward the mindset of one who is following Jesus, who is still in the sinful flesh. Yes, we should follow what the Lord Jesus has done and see his examples in Scripture, but he is God in human flesh. And yet we see examples of those men and women beset by sin, yet trusted Jesus Christ. Examples in Scripture that we follow and mimic as we trust the Lord Jesus Christ. We follow and mimic from the heart. And so we are commanded to become continually, habitually fellow imitators of me. And I want to ask you, are you like Paul in the way you look at your circumstances? We saw so many passages in Scripture, just in Philippians, where we can look at how he responded as he trusted Christ. Are we like him in those things? How did you do this last week? Well, we fail. If you do, confess, be forgiven, and become more like Paul. He says, become fellow imitators of me. And within that, we also saw the command that we are to also observe, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. That term pattern we saw speaks of a type or a tupos, an impression by a mark, a blow. It's a copy. Look also at those who walk like Paul and be like that. Observe, scope that out. You know, he who walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Hang out with those who trust Jesus. Hang out with those who are in his word becoming more and more like Jesus. Hang out with those who are pressing forward, not looking back. Observe those who, who walk according to the pattern they have in us. You have in us. And so we want to look at that. Those who have faith. We saw in the book of Hebrews. Remember those who spoke the word of God to you. Who, those who led you, who spoke the word of God. And observe their conduct and the outcome of their faith. See how they trusted Jesus. And how that manifests and how they responded to circumstances in their lives. We see this. Uh, for, turn to First Thessalonians chapter 2. The Thessalonian church became imitators. They mimicked the reality of those who truly came to faith by really truly responding to persecution rightly. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God 
that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Four, he's going to explain. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. The word was at work in you, and when you were persecuted, you endured in that, in Christ Jesus. You became imitators of other believers who trusted the Lord in the midst of persecution. And so we can see in Scripture who we are to imitate from the heart. But also we can see those who are truly following the Lord, not from the outside, but from the inside, and observe them who walk according to the pattern that we see in the Apostle Paul. Keep a watchful eye out for that. So how are we doing? Are we mimicking the truth of the way the Apostle Paul followed Jesus Christ? Are we doing that in our lives, seeing things from the same perspective, a heavenly mindset, not an earthly mindset? Are we, are we doing that? Are we scoping out those who are trusting Jesus in the same way? We sang that song, trusting Jesus, simply trusting every day. The simplicity of a devotion to Christ. It's not difficult. It is relying on Him completely. Believing in Him completely. Allowing His Word to work in your heart. Simply trusting Jesus. So then we have the positive command to pursue Christ's likeness, to imitate together, to scope out those who do so. And then, at this point, Paul shares two rationales why we should be doing so. We saw the first one last week, and we'll briefly review it. The first one was a negative rationale, and then the second one is what we'll see today in depth, which is a positive rationale for actually doing and obeying the command. You see, God says you should be obeying the command because those who don't are like this, and those who do are going there. He's going to share it. So here we have the, the negative rationale we looked at last week, and I'm not just going to briefly go through it. For many, remember the term for is explaining. If I say I went to the store for or because I needed to get some aspirin, he's explaining. Walk this way and observe them because the people that don't walk that way are on their way to destruction, but the people that are are on their way to glory. That's basically what he's going to say. For many walk of whom I've often told you and now even tell you weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose, whose, God is, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. We are to imitate those who walk like Paul. We're to imitate the walk of Paul, focusing on Christ, trusting in him, not relying on their own abilities, not relying on their flesh. Recognizing that the true believer puts no confidence in the flesh, and when we do, we're sinning, and we confess that. Walk like Paul. Don't put confidence in yourself. Don't put confidence in others. Put confidence in Jesus Christ. But he says, for many... In contrast, I've often, I've often told you and now telling you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, I believe in context, he's speaking of many who, who would say they are believers. That's the context here. Remember chapter 3, he's saying, hey, the bad guys, beware here. But the good guys do this. They don't trust in their flesh. They glory in Christ Jesus. They, don't, they put no confidence in the flesh. 
There are many people who are what I would call make-believers. Now, we're not to judge where people's hearts are, but sometimes we can see from their, what they say, right? We can understand. But Paul says here, many, as I've often told you, the reality is not everyone who names the name of Christ is a true Christian. Not everyone who names the name. And Paul often told them, often told them, even weeping, it broke his heart. I don't know if it breaks your heart to look out there and see so many people who name the name of Jesus who live like hell. And what I mean by that, maybe not outright sin, they live like hell by trusting in themselves and relying in themselves. That's living like hell, by the way. For many walk, have a lifestyle, which here he says that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. It makes them effectively an enemy of the cross of Christ. And this breaks the heart of the Apostle Paul. Now certainly this includes the false teachers they were to beware of earlier. Beware, beware, beware the false circumcision. We are the true circumcision, Paul said. But it includes many those who would name the Lord's name but not truly, truly follow him. Not truly be on the narrow road. Not truly have entered through the narrow gate, Jesus Christ, through faith alone in him. You might remember the Lord Jesus said, many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, Many say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff in your name? He says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You're still in your sins. I don't know you. You see, we only can know the Lord Jesus Christ in a real relationship when our sins are forgiven through faith in him. So he says, for many walk the way they live. And whom I've often told you, now even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, I'm not totally sure what he means by the enemies of the cross of Christ, but we can kind of understand. We see in some way the way they live their lives places them in opposition to the cross of Christ. It makes them hostile to what Christ did on the cross. He brought about forgiveness of sins and a relationship with him. They are enemies. They are in opposition to the cross of Christ. You see, the cross of Christ is how we're saved, and it was nothing from us and all from God. All from God. Now, this implies here, as you look at the whole context, that they're not self-stated enemies, but their bogus walk makes them effectively enemies of the cross of Christ. You see, this is the walk of false teachers and false brethren, and we see that. It makes them enemies. An enemy of the cross of Christ is not simply one who states himself as an enemy, and here in this context, it is one who is an enemy because of their walk. And he explains their walk in a minute. And we're going to see they are those who are not pressing towards that goal because they haven't been saved. They could care less about Christ's likeness because they haven't been saved. They feel they care more about their own felt needs and their focus is on this earth alone. And Paul was weeping over it. Weeping over it. He says they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And look at verse uh, 19, whose end is destruction that's what god says the end of that road in trusting in yourself relying on yourself even religiously paul was very religious he was the most religious guy around if anybody could trust himself look at him he had the credentials whose end is destruction they will be eternally destroyed in torment and punishment forever and ever because they rejected the free salvation the gift of salvation in jesus christ 
And we're going to see what they look like. It says their end is destruction. Now you can go out and play games at church. You can go out and play games with people around you. You can say all you want, but God sees the heart. And if your walk truly betrays, if your walk is like these, as we'll see, continually, habitually, it's an evidence that something's wrong. That something's wrong. The Bible is clear that there's a terrifying destruction, judgment, eternal punishment, fire, and darkness awaits those in whom Paul is speaking of here. He says, whose end is destruction. Now, I, I hate to say this, but there may be some here today who don't know Christ. And right now, your end is destruction. But that can change. Your end can be glory, as we're going to see. Your end can be glory with the Lord Jesus forever and ever. Through faith in him, if you will humble yourself, not relying on yourself in any way when you trust in Jesus Christ. And then that will manifest in your life, by and large, more and more, as you trust in the Lord on a daily basis. And notice the description of these people. He says, first of all, whose God is their appetite. The term used here speaks of the natural desires. That's who leads their life, their natural desires, my feelings, my emotions, my desires. Do your emotions lead you all day long? Or do you say no to them in the power of the Spirit of God and allow God's Word to control you? Do you grieve over it when they do and you confess it? Because we do struggle. Whose God is their appetite. And notice he says, whose glory is in their shame. They glory in the things they should be ashamed of. He doesn't say their glory is their shame. It's glory in their shame. They glory in the things they should be ashamed of. You and I should be ashamed, and we are ashamed when we trust in ourselves. If you don't rely on Jesus Christ and you step forward and walk in your own strength, you should be ashamed of that. The Apostle Paul saw his self-reliance before Christ as refuse. Refuse. He thought it was great. It was all gain, but it was actually loss. He says his glory in their shame. And then he says, and what we saw last week, who set their minds on earthly things. It's where your mind dwells every day. Is your mind on simply the things of earth, or are those things filtered through the truth that comes through the Word of God concerning the heavenly realities? We all can be earthly-minded at times, but the non-believer is continually earthly-minded. They set their minds on earthly things. Simply put, their minds dwell on the things of earth rather than things of Christ. They're not the blessed man who would meditate in the word day and night. They are like the cursed man, the one who will not stand in the judgment, who will be blown away like chaff, Psalm 1. Their continual habitual mindset of a make-believer or a false brethren, although they may say they love Jesus Christ, although they may sing of Jesus Christ, their continual habitual mindset, which I can't see, you can't see, but God sees, is focused on the things of earth. Now, obviously, we as believers can leave our first love in a sense. We can become dulled. We can become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We were never always that way. We did set our mind on the things above when we got saved. We did trust Jesus. We did walk with him if we were really saved. But we got dulled. We need to confess that and get right with the Lord. You see, Paul makes it clear that those who have been saved 
set their mind on the things above. And we are to do that. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. If then you have been raised up with Christ. You see, when you trust in Jesus Christ, we, are, we die with him, we are co-crucified with him, Romans chapter 6, and we are raised with him. We are in union with Christ. If this is the reality for you, you're a true believer, then keep seeking. Keep on seeking. It's not saying start seeking. Keep on seeking the things above. Where Christ is, that's the important part. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We're going to see that later. For true believers. Well, some might say you're too heavenly minded and no earthly good. Well, if you're a phony baloney heavenly minded, maybe. But if you are truly heavenly minded, you are absolutely earthly good because you are filtering everything through the truth of God in the context of trusting the God of the truth. If you've truly been saved, we are commanded to set our mind on the things above. And how do we do that? Where do we find the things above? It's in the word of God that we see the eternal and heavenly realities that we cannot see, feel, or understand apart from the word of God. Things that the eye has not seen, ear has not heard, but God has revealed to us. He has given them to us in his word. So then we have the first motivation for mimicking the Apostle Paul, realizing that those who do not walk this way continually habitually are on their way to destruction. Those phony baloney make-believers who have a said relationship but never truly trusted in Jesus, they're in this destruction. They're in destruction. The first motivation that we shouldn't walk the way they walk. Because we're not like them, as we're going to see. Because we're in Christ. So my question to you is, where does your mind continually, habitually sit? What do you think of? Is it just absorbed with the things of this life alone? When situations arise, circumstances, people, relationships, is it only this way? You need to examine yourself. Have I truly come to faith in Jesus Christ? Because when we receive the Spirit of God, we receive the ability to understand the Word of God and understand the things that are revealed concerning the things above. You see, if your mind is set continually habitually on the flesh and things below, Romans chapter 8, your destiny is a horrifying one. It's a horrifying one. And if you're a believer, this should motivate you to a holy life, what God has saved you from. You see, we seem to point our finger at all the big sins, all that stuff. We don't see the really big sins as not trusting Jesus, but relying on ourselves. That's really sinful. You see, it's impossible to please God apart from faith. You see, if you rely on yourself rather than Jesus, you, when you came to salvation, you didn't get saved. You've got to rely on him completely. And we are to do that as we walk in our walk. Because if we don't, maybe, just maybe, it's an evidence we don't know him. So with that in mind, that's the negative, the negative rationale for mimicking a, a life that focuses on Jesus Christ, sitting on the gun, becoming like him, pressing forward, not looking back. Going towards that upward call of conformity to the image of Christ. And that leads us to our passage here today, 
where we're going to see the positive one. Remember, I've said a few times, if you listened, I prayed that we would be encouraged today. Now, if you were here last week, all you heard was walk like that because of the negative part, right? And you just heard that. Well, here's the positive part, and it is really, really, really great. Look at uh, verse 20. For our citizenship, back in Philippians 3, is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. You see, the Apostle Paul was confident that the true believers in Philippi, saints in Philippi, that God would complete the work. And now he's going to talk about the completion of that work. You see, God is going to complete the work that he started. He's going to talk about it. And that should motivate us to walk differently now because of what we will be and who we, who possesses us and who we are, where we are citizens of. Notice again in verse 20 it says 4. He's explaining. Remember this whole passage is based on chapter, verse 17. Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For, the negative example, we just saw that. And then here again, for, Walk this way, observe them who do, for or because of this. Because, first of all, our citizenship is in heaven. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you've relied on him completely like a child, humbly, but just believing. If you trusted in Christ, turning from your sin to Jesus for forgiveness, then you have a new citizenship. And the Apostle Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven. And by contrast, those who set their mind on earthly things, their citizenship is here. And it just goes lower and lower, by the way, to destruction. But ours is in heaven. Now, some of us might not realize what a powerful statement this is to the Philippians, to the Philippian church. You see, the Philippians were Roman citizens, and in chapter 1, chapter verse 27, we see that they were to live, literally, the word was there, as citizens worthy of the gospel. And now we have the exact same Greek word translated citizenship here, but in a verb. It's the word politeo, which we get our word politics. It speaks of public duties required of a member of a body. It speaks of living as a citizen with all the associated responsibilities and privileges. And here in our word, the verb form, poletuma. We get that same word, same, same variant. And you say, why is this so important? Well, it was well known that the Philippians were proud of their Roman citizenship. You see, Philippi was a Roman colony that had the privilege of Roman citizenship. Let me share a little historical fact about it. One author writes, the city of Philippi was not an ordinary city. It was granted special status by Caesar after the defeat of Anthony during the Civil War. After the Battle of Actium, which squelched the rebellion, a large number of soldiers retired to this city, so it was declared to be a Roman colony. This special status evoked a sense of pride among its inhabitants. It was Rome away from Rome, and that pride is seen in Acts, 20, Acts chapter 16, verses 20 and 21. They saw themselves as Romans. Rome was their mother, and they never forgot whom they belonged to. 
They spoke Latin. They wore Roman dress. They called the magistrates by their Latin titles. They were deeply into Roman citizenship and all that it was. And Paul says, we are citizens. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's our citizenship. We have a heavenly citizenship. And think about all the privileges you have with that. You see, for believers, the earth is not our home. We live here. We're temporal residents. But our citizenship is in heaven. You see, and this needs to be recognized that this is actually emphatic in the Greek. Our citizenship, emphatic, is in heaven. And you could say it this way. Actually, the verb is hooparcha, which means continually exists. Our citizenship continually exists in heaven. That's what it is. That's what it is. Continually exists in heaven. He's reminding these Philippian believers where their true citizenship exists. It exists in heaven. You see, we have an incredible contrast between those of earthly citizenship, make believers destined to destruction, and true believers who are not of this world, but heavenly citizens, destined for, as we will see, the culmination of their salvation. Destined for glory. You see, the meek meek believers, make believers, they are effectively enemies of the cross of Christ because they function based on their own desires. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And we were all that way, by the way. We were all that way. Every single one of us was born as a sinner. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There's no relationship between you and God. You're dead to God because of sin. In which you formerly walked, that's your walk, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived, here you go, in the, literally the word is desires, but it's translated lust when it's in a negative context. We lived in the desires of our flesh, or lusts, indulging in the desires of flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even of the rest. That's the way we were. That's those who are below. We live based on our own desires, our emotions. That's the way we live. We, we allow us to control everything. But when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, things changed. Things changed. We became born again. We became believers in Jesus Christ as we trusted in him. We became new creations in Christ. And our mindset was changed towards sin and towards God. You see, the earthly citizenship is those who are in their sins have an earthly citizenship, but we have a heavenly citizenship. So why should we be mimicking and imitating the walk of Paul as revealed in Scripture, pressing forward, not looking back, reaching towards the prize, the upward call, being made like Jesus? Another reason, this is not our home. We are heavenly citizens. And it's easy to kind of get kind of endeared towards this place, right? Some of the stuff's pretty nice, right? It's easy to get endeared. But then God reminds us as we see the wickedness around us and the sin that this is not our home. This is not our home. Ben read this earlier. Hebrews chapter 11. Turn there. You see, true believers see it this way. Now, you may be dulled and forget. You may be dulled and stop thinking this way. 
But God's reminding you so that you would think this way again. Hebrews chapter 11. This is the faith chapter. It is the testimony of those who by faith endured to the end. You see, it's by faith. I'm going to back up a little. Hebrews 11 verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. That's really important. By faith, he obeyed. He obeyed going out to a place which he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. We always want to know where we're going, right? He just obeyed God, didn't he? By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. It's the promised land. As in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For... Verse 10, he was looking for a city whose foundations and whose architect and builder is God. He had a different perspective. And then look down to what was read earlier, verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They confessed the reality of who they really were in Christ. This world is not our home. He says there, for those who say such things, make it clear they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking that country which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. If you just desire this place to get better, you're in trouble. This world is corrupted by sin. It's corrupted by sin. I hope you desire a better country. Because true believers, by faith, do so. We see the example of faith here. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Is God ashamed to be called your God? They desire a better country. And it says, for he has prepared a city for them. Tremendous reality. And how does one go from an earthly citizenship to a heavenly citizenship? Through faith in Jesus Christ. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, and once we become heavenly citizens, our minds should be thinking differently. The Apostle Peter, as we saw when we went through First Peter, continually spoke of those who were suffering as believers, as those who were aliens. Aliens. We hear a lot about illegal aliens these days, right? We hear a lot about aliens, whatever it might be, right? those who are from a foreign place where they're not from, right? Well, hey, we are, we're, we're, we're legal aliens here, but uh, this is not our home. This is not our home. First Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, resident aliens. First Peter chapter 2, 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly Lusts are desires which wage war with the soul. When your desires trump his desires, you've got a war going on in your soul. And if that's happening with you today, confess, be forgiven, and walk in the context of the peace that Christ gives you. We're to set our mind on the things above. I want to share a few passages. I'll read this one for you, and then we'll turn together to another one. Second Corinthians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says concerning the difficulties that they were going through, for momentary light affliction, 417, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, seen it eternally, beyond far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, 
but at the things which are not seen. That's what I focus on. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. What do you look at? Do you focus on the eternal or the temporal? Yes, the temporal is all around us. It's there every day. We're tempted with the temporal every day. But do you focus on the eternal? Turn to, uh, actually, turn to Luke chapter 12, verse 15, and I'm going to read Matthew chapter 6 first. Turn to Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Now, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, I'm going to read this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in a steel. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If your treasure's here, your heart's here. If your treasure's in heaven, your heart's there. Now, Luke chapter 12, verse 15. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. And he said to them, Beware and on your guard of every form of greed. For not even what a man has in abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable. The land of a certain rich man was very productive, and he was began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he, and he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up in store. You have many goods uh, laid up, for many years to come, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That doesn't sound very evil, does it? Well, look at what God says. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Where your heart is, is where your treasure is. You see, and money's a good indicator of that. Security that comes from it, the security where your heart is. And he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life, as to what you shall eat, nor for your body, for what you shall eat or put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens that they neither sow nor reap, they neither have no, they have a storeroom nor a barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why are you anxious about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil or spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so raised the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, O men of little faith? Faith is the issue. And do not seek what you should eat, what you should drink, nor keep, do not keep worrying. For all these things, the nations, the Gentiles, that's non-believers, by the way, uh, eagerly, of, of the world, eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. But seek for his kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen to gladly give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to charity, make purses which have do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven, where the thief comes, no thief comes near, nor the moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is. 
Our citizenship exists in heaven if you're a true believer. And therefore, we should be motivated to live differently in this life. To look at the example of the Apostle Paul who was focused towards glory and the things of Christ rather than the things of earth. And if you're focused this way, you will be absolutely the way the Lord wants you to be in the things of earth. Let me ask you this. Where does your citizenship exist? Is it in heaven or not? Are you either you're headed for salvation or destruction? And where your mind sets continually habitually on a daily basis is an evidence of that. Now notice, he says, we are citizens of heaven, believers. But he's also going to say something glorious at this point. Verse 20, back in Philippians chapter 3. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also, speaking of heaven, by the way, we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what believers do. We eagerly await a Savior. This term, eagerly await, apodekomai, speaks of eagerly waiting to welcome, to receive. You know, there are things that we eagerly wait for, and I mentioned them in the beginning. Maybe you eagerly wait to finish school. You eagerly await to, uh, to graduate. You eagerly await the birth of a child. You eagerly await a marriage. You eagerly await whatever it might be. But here, believers eagerly await to receive a Savior. Look what it says. We eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await for a Savior. And that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there's only one Savior, and God, the Son, is our Savior. Uh, just briefly turn to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. In contrast to the idolatry that was going on, the Lord God declares this truth. Isaiah 45, verse 21. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has this? Who has announcement from this? This from old? Who has long since declared it? It is not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God, a Savior, a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that every knee will bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Tremendous passage. There's no other God or Savior but God. And you see the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, is our Savior. He is the Savior of the world. And we eagerly await a Savior. He is a Savior, and more specifically, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. The term Lord speaks of, uh, of deity here. He is the I Am. He is, he is the Master, the ultimate Master. He is the Lord of all. The term Jesus is his human name. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The word Jesus, Yeshua, means Yahweh, or the Lord, saves. Christ speaks of the Anointed One, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who would have to suffer for the glories to follow. We eagerly await a Savior. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, we should be taught this, that he's coming back for us. 
You see, Paul taught the Thessalonians that. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, For they themselves report what kind of reception we have with you, how you turn to God from idols, that's repentance, to serve the living God and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven to wait for him. We should be eagerly awaiting him. We've probably forgotten a lot about that, haven't we? We should be eagerly awaiting. Eagerly awaiting to welcome, to receive. Titus chapter 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men that offer us for everyone instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Looking for him. Eagerly awaiting. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear that Jesus appeared once for sin, but he will appear once again, and not in respect to sin. Hebrews 9.27 Inasmuch as it is appointed men once to die and then comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. To those who eagerly await him. We await a Savior. Now you might be saying, wait a second, I thought I was already saved. Well, the reality is, we are and have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. We were justified. We were declared righteous. We've been saved. But we are also being saved right now from sin. We're being set apart from sin. That's sanctification. And our Savior is ultimately going to bring us glorification, as we're going to see. Salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Romans chapter 13. We eagerly await a Savior. A Savior. Is going to come for us. And what's he going to do? Look back in our passage. Verse 21. What's the Savior going to do that we're waiting for? Who will, Philippians 3.21, transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory? Tremendous reality. He's talking about our glorification, the transformation of our bodies. You see, when I got saved... Nothing changed here. My body didn't change at all. It's the same old body it is. It's the same running down body. Slightly larger. Running down. It's the same one. It's the same one. But I was saved. My soul was saved. I've been redeemed. But my body has not been glorified. It's not been glorified. But Christ is going to come again. And scripture reveals that he's going to come first for his church, that the church is not destined for wrath, but salvation. First Thessalonians 5, 9. You see, the Lord Jesus is going to take us away to be with him, and then he will come again in judgment. Jesus Christ will come visibly for his church. And let me share some passages from that. John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus says to his disciples. On the day he was leaving, he was going to go to the cross that night. He was going to go the next day, but it was the night before he was betrayed. Excuse me, the night he was betrayed. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, that's in heaven, by the way, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. For I go, that's there, to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, that's in heaven... I will come again and receive you to myself, 
that where I am in heaven, he's saying, when he comes and gets us, there you may be also. And we have the same thing in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Let's turn there, 1 Thessalonians 3. The Thessalonians were waiting for, eagerly for Christ, but yet some had died, and they thought, did we miss it? What's going to go on now? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have fallen, who are asleep, that's, that's who died, that you may grieve like the rest, as, the, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For I say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be at the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You see, Jesus is coming for his church. And when he comes, we're going to be glorified. We're going to be glorified. We're going to be changed. We're going to be changed. And see, the church should be, if you're a true believer, expectantly awaiting. If you are comfortable with the way this world is and the way you are, that's trouble. Man, we are sinners. I want this body of sin, this body of death to be done away with. I want to be glorified. I want to have the culmination of salvation happening. And notice what he says, who will transform, back in our passage, the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. That is a statement that I can't even fathom. He'll conform us to the... this transform the body of our humble state into conformity to the body of his glory. Turn to Romans chapter 8. You see, we should be eagerly awaiting the redemption of our bodies. Beset with sin, beset with the, the curse of the, the things from the fall, diseases, those things. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. For we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, up to this point. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we got the Spirit inside of us, right? We know about righteousness. We don't want to sin, right? We ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly. Our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but in hope that is not... That is seen is not hope, for why does one hope also hope for what he sees? But if we hope in what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Brothers and sisters, we should be looking forward to Christ's coming in which he will change us and save us, finish the job of salvation. So wonderful. He says here that he will transform, back in our passage, the body of our humble state. The term transform is an interesting word here. It's, it's, uh, it's not metamorpheo, like metamorphosis. It is metaschemazo. Okay, what does that mean? It means an outward transformation. He's going to transform us outwardly. The inward's already been done. 
It's the same word that speaks of Satan transforming himself as an angel of light. He appears on the outside to be that way. But we are actually going to, on the outside, be glorified, transformed. It's an outward transformation of our bodies. This terrible body running down, changed, glorified forever. Who will transform the body of our humble state. And then he says here, into conformity with the body of his glory. The term conformity, soon morphos, having the same form. We're going to be conformed into the same as the body of his glory. I can't fathom that. Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. He was glorified. We're going to be like him, physically speaking. Not God, but physically speaking. Conformed to the body of his glory. His glorious body. Tremendous. You see, when we were saved, our bodies weren't changed at all. The Apostle Paul reckoned the reality of sin still in our flesh. You see, if you're a true believer, you don't like sinning. You go, "Ah, why did it do that? Darn. Lord, it was wrong. You see, we want to do the right thing at times, but yet we don't. We have a different attitude. Romans chapter 7, Paul comes to this conclusion, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus our Lord. We're going to be set free, and that's what Romans 8 is about. No condemnation and ultimately glory. Tremendous. Our bodies are going to be transformed. Ultimately, he says here, the humble transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. We're going to be glorified. We can't imagine that. We live in this humble state right now. We are beset with physical weakness. We're beset with sin. God's going to change that. We await a Savior that's going to do that and finish the job of salvation, right? That's what we await, and we eagerly await it. And those who are thinking this way are pressing forward. Those who are thinking this way are wanting to be like Christ. Those who are pressing forward are reaching towards the goal, the upward call. They're looking at the example of Christ and wanting to be, or Christ and Paul and wanting to be like that as we're commanded. The body of our humble state. And I could read a bunch of passages, but we're out of time. You can read 1 Corinthians 15 on your own. We shall all be changed. This immortal must put, this mortal must put on immortality. First John chapter 3, Beloved, now we are children of God, verse 2, it has not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when he appears, that's our Savior, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. You see, if we're looking forward to glory, then we are about glory now. We want to we be more like him. We want to be like Paul. Let's finish up here. Notice how he does it. End of verse 21. By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. I would read Ephesians 1. Christ is all-powerful. He's God. And by the exertion of his power, which he has to subject all things to himself, he's going to make us like him. He's going to make us like him. So we have the command to walk the way Paul walked. 
We have the command to observe those who do so. Be focused on the things above, not the things of earth. Why? Because those who are focused on things of earth are on their way to destruction. But we are those who eagerly await a Savior. He's going to transform our bodies. We're going to be glorified. We're going to be glorified. So I began by talking about what things people eagerly await. And I can probably say with fairly good certainty that many of us don't eagerly await the coming of Christ to do this. But we should. We should. We should be looking forward to what Christ will do when our Savior comes for us and we are glorified. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this truth. What an encouragement, Lord. We are, those of us who are saved, we are beset with sin. We struggle each day. We fail. And yet you forgive us when we confess. And we want to be more and more like your son, Jesus. And we want to press forward towards the upper call. We want to do that. And yet we're not there yet. And we never will get there until your son comes. And I pray that we would just be eagerly awaiting a savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our bodies, his humble state into conformity with his glorious body because of his great power. Lord, we focus on the wrong things. Help us renew our minds to focus on your son Jesus and what he will do. And we say, come Lord Jesus. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name.